And those are the best members of the team you want to have. Someone who has talent, who gives their all, but recognizes that we have a whole team to build and a business to build. My name is Merrill Dubrow, CEO of Mark Research. I'm a 35-year veteran of the research and insights community and the host of our podcast, On The Mark. On The Mark is focusing on executives and thought leaders in the world, sharing their insights, strategies, and personal experiences. I promise this podcast will be filled with tough, pointed questions with real, insightful, and emotional answers. Today's guest is my good friend, my mentor, Sandy Schwartz, partner of Phoenix Marketing International. Sandy, it is a pleasure to welcome you to the On The Mark podcast. Well, Merrill, it's my pleasure to be here with you. What can I do for you? Sandy, we're going to have a nice little chat, just like we always do, not unrehearsed, just who knows what direction this is going to go. But we're going to start with something special, something a little different. Give me something that most people will be surprised to know about you. When I was 50 years old, I went back to graduate school and obtained a master's degree in social work. At the same time, I also set up a not-for-profit organization called City Squash that services children and families in economic need. You've seen a lot of changes. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of, as you see it, some of the most dramatic changes in the industry that you've witnessed? Sure. Well, there there are several obvious ones. How data is collected. When I first started in the industry, people had clipboards and used to knock on doors. The whole concept of um, talking to consumers and testing out products and shopping malls became something that people did. And then there were focus groups and then the advent of random digital telephone interviewing and then just mass market telephone interviewing and then uh, the advent of online uh, electronic interviewing. And now the industry is moving in the direction of uh, more of a focus on electronics, integrating different data sources, using social media attached to primary research combined with, in the future, additional secondary resources that will be brought together. Uh, how companies are organized is being changed dramatically. Obviously, uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, it's forcing temporary changes in how companies are organized, which will most likely lead to long-term changes in terms of how companies are organized. Yeah. That's what I really, I want to focus obviously on long-term and, and what that industry, what the industry looks like past COVID-19. Look, my, my belief is that this is the beginning of something. What it is, I don't, I don't exactly know, but I think COVID-19 is going to come back in the winter and which I'm a little scared about, but let's, let's agree that at some point we're past this. What does the insights community industry look like? post-COVID-19 in terms of changes that will definitely happen as you see them today? Sure. So no no one knows uh, what the future is going to bring. I certainly don't know what it's going to bring. But my bet is that there'll be some fundamental structural changes in 
how the industry operates and what the product is that we industry delivers. So the easy, low-hanging fruit is the idea of uh, fixed expenses and office overheads. We're going through a live test of the entire industry, basically working from home as opposed to working in a central location. If it works out well, and it probably will work out well for the companies to continue to deliver the same product, the same level of quality of the product in its new configuration, uh, over time, you'll see less money spent on overhead expenses and specifically less money on rental expenses. In addition to that, uh, how business is uh, sold and captured is going to change, I believe. Less business travel, less business entertainment, not because travel and entertainment aren't important, but because people are going to figure out how to get things done with traveling less and entertaining differently. A lot of good takeaways there for sure. Um, And the industry, as you said, I think will be going through just tremendous changes. Um, Lots of twists and turns that we've got to do. When I think about our buddy, Steve Schlesinger, who in the past six or seven months has bought three companies that have probably totaled over $100 million. In your career, you've bought how how many transactions in total? Is it 20, 30, 40? Been involved in either acquisitions or divestiture in the process of selling companies of more than 30 companies, but easily um, 25 classic acquisitions. All right. So those 25 acquisitions, is it north or south on that revenue when you bought it of a billion dollars? Not what you paid, a billion dollars. I was involved with um, a long-term trend to help grow the size of the business. When I joined uh, MarketFax, we had uh, revenues of something in the neighborhood of um, $7 million, $10 million, something like that. And when we sold the company, we had revenues in the neighborhood of 135 million. When I joined Phoenix, we had uh, revenues in the neighborhood of four or five million dollars. And now the company has revenues in the neighborhood of 80 million dollars. Over how many years, Phoenix? When was Phoenix started, Sandy? Do you remember? Al Dakotas and Martha Ray, my two very good partners, founded the company in. June of 99, I joined the business along with my private equity partner, ZS Fund LP, who were my partners also at MarketFax. So I was a two-time player with them uh, in November of 2002. So in November of 2002, the revenues were in the neighborhood of four or five million dollars. Okay, so let's talk about that for a second because you're talking about unbelievable growth. If you take it just from the start, you're talking about over 21 years, taking it from zero to north of $80 million. Um, most companies don't get past. I mean, there's three levels of, of revenue that I look at in the if I bucketed 
all of the companies. There's zero to three and a half million, three and a half to nine million, and then nine million and plus. Obviously, you guys are way, way beyond that. But most companies, they don't get, they don't crash through nine million. How did you, Martha and Al, do that? I mean, what is there some secret sauce that I, I don't want you to give up all of the the secrets, but but a few. Is there some things that you look back, you Martha Al, when you're going out for a partner dinner and saying, "Hey, you know what? We we had some success, and th- these are the three or four things that really catapulted it. Was it a, was it a strategy in terms of a new product? Was it a hire? Was it an acquisition? I mean, what was it? Because most companies don't do what you've done. Over time, uh, things have evolved in terms of what we look for with companies, but a few things have always been consistent. Uh, Let's say with Phoenix, we've had 10 plus transactions, okay? In every one of those transactions, we, number one, uh, only looked for businesses where uh, we were able to retain a management team that we thought added value to the business. We didn't want to start off in something and try to create it from the ether. Um, Many of the people who uh, were involved in transactions uh, go back more than 15 years and are still with us in the company. So we look to retain a management team. Uh, The second thing, which is probably the first thing, is we um, tried our best not to screw things up. (laughs) If things were going okay, we didn't want to come in and say, no, we know how to do it better. Um, that's usually the kiss of death with most transactions and why most of them fail, because people have too big of egos that get in the way of trying to run a business. Then the third thing is gradually over time, we try to move towards synergies, either with products or technologies across different clients that we had in our legacy company versus the new businesses. And gradually over time, um, we tried to consolidate uh, some corporate functions. Needed to make sure we were on the same wavelength about healthcare, HR practices, accounting systems, payroll, etc. And that usually starts pretty quickly within the first few months or the first six months. Um, Certainly by the end of the first year, we've had to integrate things at the corporate level. Those are three things that all of our transactions try to have in common. But there's also a a non-quantifiable ingredient, which is we had a feel that people we were bringing into our company, which we really look at as our family, were people who we thought we were going to be able to work with long-term. And for many years, we've prided ourselves on an exceptionally low uh, turnover rate of employees. I know the industry, uh, compared to other industries, has a very low turnover rate. But there were years that we would have a retention of 95% of our employees year over year. Some would say that's not good. 
Sandy. I mean, I want to let me just let me just go on the other side of the coin. Not I'm sorry to give some pushback, but because we've had some years at Mark that have been very, very low. And I've gotten this debate with my buddies, you know, Andrew Bowsk or Gary Schumann or Steve Schlesinger. And turnover actually is a positive thing. I mean, so if you're at, you know, 5% or 3% in year over year, you know, um, that's not always great, right? Absolutely. I agree with you completely. It also depends upon um, what's happening with the company. So they're both the internal issues and the external issues. But if your uh, business is growing at uh, 15, 20% a year, um, you're probably likely to uh, retain some people who you may not retain if the business is flat or going down in size. And one could argue that we were not being uh, diligent enough in terms of controlling our costs. But since we're the owners of the company and our private equity partner shares our views with us, since we're the owners of the company and we can make the decisions about it, we don't have to answer to any outside forces, um, it seemed that creating an environment where our employees weren't worried about things, that we were going to maximize our business potential in ways other than short-term gains by reducing some people who would be on the bubble. People who weren't on the bubble but who were not good performers, obviously, uh, they didn't make it very long in our environment. So without putting words in your mouth, are you saying profits cover up problems to some extent? I think when businesses are uh, doing well, um, natural tendency is to uh, give people uh, more chances than you would give them in an environment where things weren't going as well. No, I think there's some really good takeaways. That's happened here. That was one of my learnings from about five or seven years ago, that profits, we were, we were doing extremely well, and it masked some of the issues that we had, and, and I vowed never to let that happen again. Hey, Sandy, switching gears, I mean, over 50 years, what's the toughest decision, toughest business decision you ever had to make in your career? Well, all of the hardest decisions in business are always personnel-related having to terminate people, uh, having to give people performance reviews where they're not doing well, makes you work harder uh, in the interviewing process so that um, you're less likely to have situations where you're going to have to let people go if you've done a better job in the interviewing side up front. Yeah, no, I, I think that's good. I, I, I've had a similar situation in my past as well. And it's, it, they're all hard decisions. Let's, um, let's switch gears for half a second. One of my fondest memories of us is when we were in Tampa at a meeting and you, we were playing tennis right off the water and I, the glare was, was wild, but you hit a serve about 120 miles an hour and almost put it through my chest. But, but your athleticism and your competitiveness is just off the charts. I would suggest that's one of the reasons you, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons that you're just so successful and you've, you've done a marvelous job with your career. 
I mean, I think that's also one of the reasons I think we've always bonded and I've always respected your your approach and the way you handle yourself. We did that athleticism and that razor sharp competitiveness. Where did that come from? Was that instilled from your your growing up with your parents? Is that where did that come from? First, Merrill, it probably was only a hundred miles an hour, not a hundred and twenty. Okay, it must have been the glare. <laughs> when I was in elementary school, I had some undiagnosed uh, learning disability issues. I didn't read until I was in fourth grade. I was sort of, you know, school was an awkward thing for me. I found salvation in sports. I was around sports my whole life. And it turns out that I was better at hitting a ball, mapping out strategies and for basketball plays or football plays than I was in pretty much anything else. And some of that carried over into my business life in terms of trying to build teams and be parts of teams. But the the real success that I've had in business has been very much related to the people I've been able to partner with over the years. Earlier stages in my life, um, people like Vern Churchill and Tom Payne, and prior to that, people like Bob Lavage, all provided wonderful environments for growth and opportunities and provided me with some resources to try to help put together teams that uh, were successful. Yeah, it's it's just impressive. And I, I, I look forward to whenever that is, if that's if we're fortunate enough to play pickleball in 2020 or even 2021, it's it's a weight that I will look forward to each and every day. Hey, Sandy, I'm going to end with a selfish question, and I and I, I won't apologize because it's important to me, and I'd like to know, and frankly, I'd like my kids to know because I will make them listen to this podcast. Which is, you know, we we had the opportunity to work together very early in my career. I was. Um, I was raw, probably obnoxious at times, probably had a big mouth. Um, We worked together in the late 80s. You bought the company I was working for. There was five directors at the time. There was Tina Flaherty and Phil Wysocki and Jim Longo and Tom Champion. My question would be, it just seemed that we gravitated a little bit more together and you took interest in what I was doing, maybe a little bit more. I, I don't know why, but I'm curious. The, the question I want to answer, the selfish question I want answered is, what did you see in me, this this 20-something-year-old? Do you remember back in the day? I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah. I remember uh, um, very well. Like uh, John Bonney was a very important part of uh, the mix. Dave Schaefer was an important part of the mix. What I saw in you is someone who was intelligent, had a desire to be successful, uh, was willing to listen to feedback, sometimes positive, sometimes not as positive, willing to pay your dues, uh, willing to be a a very good team member while being highly competitive. And those are the best members of the team you want to have. Someone who has talent, who gives their all, but recognizes that we have a whole team to build and a business to build. We had some you know, very successful years. 
Thanks. No, I I, uh, I appreciate that. I'm going to tell you a quick story about John Bonney, and I I actually think of him probably daily. Uh, the things that he taught me, the things that you taught me. One of the things that he said to me, I remember leaving Field Facts Quick Test for the last day in 1991, and John and I shook hands, and he looked at me. He said, "We're even," and I said, uh, "I don't understand." He goes, "We're even." John, I'm, I'm, I'm missing something. He goes, we're even, Merrill. You came, you worked hard, we paid you fairly, we're even. And you know, Sandy, it stuck with me, you know, now we're going on 30 years, almost 30 years. I didn't know what it meant for probably a decade, but now I know what it meant because how many people leave a company that you can't say that to? How many people leave a company where they don't leave the right way, they really didn't do a good job. They didn't work as hard. They didn't work as smart. They didn't weren't as successful. They didn't hit goals. And the, the interesting thing was it was so many profound things that you guys taught me that I, I, I could never thank you enough. And you molded my career. You helped me to where I am today. Part of whatever I am, unfortunately, you know, you take ownership of that, Sandy. Um, and I, I just really want to publicly say thank you for everything you did for me. And it, it's interesting. Because if I had a tagline about you, it would be something like, you did it the right way. Well, thank you, Mary. In closing, I'd like to wish you and the entire Mark team continued good health and prosperity in this difficult time in our nation's history. And I'd like to send out a big thank you to all essential workers everyone from grocery store clerks to postal workers to first responders and, of course, the courageous hospital workers who are keeping life going and saving people's lives. Sandy, I, I, I can't thank you enough for your time today. Thanks again for listening to Sandy Schwartz. This is the On The Mark podcast. My name is Merrill Jubro. Have a great day.